Thank you for joining me on the Sports in the Making podcast. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Being a sports broadcast producer isn't just formulating game coverage for the audience. It also involves skills that can make or break a show. My guest on this episode has worked some of the most prestigious events in sports during his career and has been instrumental in producing events for global audiences working alongside many accomplished announcers and athletes. And he's also been an important part of negotiating to make sports happen. We'll get into that and more on episode number 28 of Sports in the Making. This episode has visuals, so if you're listening, please be sure to subscribe to the Sports in the Making YouTube channel to see some of what we discuss. One of the most versatile producers that I've ever come across in this business is with me on this episode of the Sports in the Making podcast, Brian Williams, who's done everything from Wimbledon to U.S. Open to the Masters to uh, hockey. I mean, you name it, he's probably done it. And I have him on today to talk a little bit about his career, as well as what goes into what we do to make sports happen and what you see on the viewing side of of television sports. So, Brian, thank you so much for being with me. I really appreciate it. Don, thank you. It's it's great to be on your show and, and um, uh, appreciate the the opportunity to tell to talk about versatility. I, and maybe that just means I can't get anything right. So they, uh, <laughs> they put me on something else. Yeah, I've kind of felt that way myself because my background happens to be with international sports a lot and not on those A, A productions, but those you just go one route and you work your way into it. I, I, I you know, I, I, so it's not as not as easy as you would think. How did you get into the sports broadcasting industry? Go into a little bit about that if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the Syracuse Mafia, and, and uh, there's a lot of us out there, both on the the on-air talent grid and producers and directors and, and uh, worked with a lot of great Syracuse Newhouse guys and ladies uh, over, over my career. Um, I actually went to a two-year community college before transferring to Syracuse University where I finished up at Newhouse um, in Poughkeepsie, New York, Dutchess Community College. And, um, and after that, um, went back to teach after, after um, uh, going to Syracuse University, worked in local radio in Poughkeepsie and, and, uh, and taught at community, the, the community college, Duchess. And the greatest thing about that is I, one of my students walked in one day and, and 35 years later, she is my wife now, um, Janice. And um, I will say that while she was a student of mine for a couple of years, it was a teacher-student relationship. We just reconnected five years later after she graduated and I moved on. Anyway, so I, I taught for a few years and then, and then um, literally packed up my Chevy Nova one day in 1982 and drove to New York City and got an apartment on Riverside Drive. And fortunately, I had an interview lined up with USA Network and, and got the job at USA Network. And that was the beginning. That was, uh, I was surprised to hear when we've talked a couple of days ago before doing this, that USA Network uh, really was a, a network that was carrying a lot of sports at that time. Yeah. At that time, and this is 1982, um, they were the ESPN of, you know, television in, in the United States. I mean, we had the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL, a great boxing schedule, uh, tennis, indoor soccer and outdoor soccer. And, and, um, uh, and basically, I was an associate producer and the guy that was cutting teases and features and, and sending those to the producers on site, and in some cases, bringing in games to our facility in Alpine, New Jersey at that time. Uh, and 
the um, uh, our job was to make all this make sense. And and but uh, there was that was the sports channel USA Network at that time that you could watch all of what is now you know really what ESPN does. Um, I, I think we talked briefly the other day, and I mentioned that um, one thing I did on the weekends is I would c- take in. Uh, college football games in the fall of, of 1982 and um, and cut them down to one hour shows now a lot of these shows they were they were packed 10 shows and big 10 shows and and our job was to cut them down to one hour the first show I got in and and the date uh, was um, in uh, ni- November 20th uh, 1982 and it was the Cal Stanford game and back then you know this was a regionally televised game on the West Coast, I guess. It wasn't shown nationally, and our job was to cut it down to a one-hour show and put it on for national uh, later on in the week. And that was the play game. And and I didn't know anything about this because you didn't watch SportsCenter at that time. I didn't know. I saw the final score was Cal 25-20, but I didn't realize, and I'm editing this show down to one hour and, and scanned ahead and saw the play at the end where Cal returns the, the the onside kick through the Stanford band into the end zone to win the game 25-20. And I'm saying, maybe I need to give that a little more time at the end and show that play. And, and so that's how I saw that game for the first time and much of America saw it for the first time. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, what I'm trying to capture in this podcast is getting stories like that because a lot of people that we work with, our colleagues, we never see or hear from. It's always the announcers or the athletes. And and when I have conversations, whether it be over lunch or an event that we're working on, and I hear these things, it's like, oh, that that's really interesting. But nobody really knows that. Nobody hears about it. And so, so that's that's why you know one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on. And you know, we met back in 2014 at the Boston Marathon. Um, the year after the bombing, I was there for 2013 and found out that you were not there, but you had been covering it for years prior to that. Um, we can talk about that in a little bit, but, but one of the things that I'd noticed when working alongside you, you, you handled the world feed. I was working with NBC slash universal sports to cover the, the, the national coverage, but I noticed how connected you were with everyone, every single part of that operation, as a producer, how do you explain to people what you have to be responsible for at an event like that? Okay. Well, that in that case, it's a as you know, we we provi- provide a world feed. Bruce Troit, who has directed more marathons than anybody in the world, I'm sure, um, directs that show still, and I produce it. And in that case, NBC Universal was was taking the world feed show and creating your own show for domestic. The, the USA domestic audience. Our job in a case like that in the world feed is to work closely with you and Eurosport and all the, the, the networks around the world that are taking this and give, try to give everybody what they need for their audience. And in a case like that, the Boston Marathon, we're doing a world feed. We're cutting the race and it's being um, sent around the world. And in Sweden, they're calling it off of monitors in Swedish. And in down in South Africa, they're they're calling it in, in, in English or or other languages down there. In China, they're calling it in dialects, the Chinese dialects. And so it's it, it's put in different languages. I think we go to like it's in 22 different languages in 220 countries and and 
and areas around the world, uh, and in most cases, just about all the cases, they're taking the feed and calling it off of monitors locally and making it make sense to that to that local audience or give it that. So, so our job there is really to cover the race. I mean, we we don't do a whole lot of features because that is. You, you, you don't want to put what we call talking heads, English-speaking commentary. We do provide English commentary, and now that's Sam Rosen and, and Larry Rawson calling the English commentary. Back then it was Al Troutwig and Larry Rawson calling um, the English commentary. But, but that's just to the English-speaking countries. The rest of it is we provide international sounds and pictures to the rest of the world so they can put it in their native languages. It's a pretty complex operation you've got multiple tv trucks multiple networks multiple people you're having to coordinate with how do you manage all of that well you have a good ad <laughs> that yeah. that is on with everybody and 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 coordinating all of that but you you really do this enough and you know what everybody's wants to see i mean again um you know in your case you had control of the cameras so, so you could take our world feed or you could cut in the lead vehicles. And if your talent is talking about a, an American runner, um, Bruce would separately talk to that moto cameraman and say, get a shot of that runner they're talking about. That doesn't go out over the world feed, but that is fed to you at NBC Universal. So you can put that on and your talent can be talking about that individual runner. So it's really, you know, if you do this enough, you know what everybody's looking for and, right. and you can make, for the most part, everybody happy with the pictures you're feeding them. Yeah. And, and being in the control room when you're working, most people I'm sure have seen pictures of control rooms, but they can be very complex. So I have a couple of photos that I'd like to show you uh, yeah. of, of what it's like in there. And, and this is you. It looks like it's early in the production day. So, uh, yeah. But, but kind of if you can describe what people are looking at here. Uh, and, and again, it's not fully set up. But what are some of the things on the monitor that, that you see that you can describe? Yeah. Well, in this case, um, the director, um, Bruce Troit, is, he has all his cameras there. So he can see all of the cameras, every option he has for taking the camera shots to cover the race. Um, we're also seeing on monitors our graphics uh, feed. So we're watching every graphic that our graphics guys and, and ladies are building in the back for use in the show. Um, we also have monitors showing our EVS, what, what we you know used to call tape machines. We still call it tape machines. I do anyway. Tape yeah. machines um, to show our video replay services. We have, we have all of those in there. Um, we'll have things like net return so we can show what, we can see what's going out to the world and what maybe you, know, you are showing at that time, NBC Universal. Um, and uh, uh, so, so we're basically seeing everything that could be put out over the air, and it's up to the producer and the director to make those uh, selections of shots and tape uh, elements and graphic elements that go out to the world and, in some cases, just go to the domestic feed, domestic USA feed, US feed. Right. Um, and it's really, I, I tell you what, um, I always say this, I, I get more frustrated or nervous making a budget for a show um, <laughs> than I do sitting in this and watching, you know, 50 monitors and talking to 100 people on a headset. To right. me, I'm most comfortable doing that 
uh, and, and not so comfortable hiring and firing people and, and, and making budgets, to be honest with you. As I mentioned before, you've worked a lot of international global events, uh, Wimbledon. Uh, we're seeing the control room here from that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of redundancy. It looks like there's a lot of the same things, but they're serving different purposes. Sure. Um, and so, so when you're in a production, how complicated can it be in some, in, in, in putting stuff? And, and, and I say this because when dealing with international, from what you've explained to me and I've experienced is you're not just serving one client. It's not just going linear to one channel in the U S it's going to multiple countries, multiple outlets. Uh, I, I think with w Wimbledon, the U S open and, 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 and even the, even golf there, they have their own dedicated channels for certain coverage. So how, how complicated can it be for you bouncing around there? Yeah. It, you know, it's all about communications. It's, it's all about, you know, that's, that's one thing that the, the, the really good people in our business, as you know, Don, they're, they're good communicators. And, and I like to think of myself as a fairly good communicator. And, and it's really, you know, you put together a rundown of a show and we send that to the world so they know what's coming. We go on the air at nine o'clock local time uh, or 930 local time in, in Boston uh, and they know exactly what's going to happen at 9 o'clock. And we're going to do a tease. We're going to do a, an open. No on cameras, but we're going to introduce our announcers. We're going to give the weather. Then we're going to show off of tape the wheelchair start that took place 20 minutes ago. Uh, and then we're going to show, uh, you know, that's the men's wheelchair start. And we're going to show three minutes of that race and go back to the start line uh, again, for the recording of the women's wheelchair start that took place five minutes later. And we're going to show some of that. And then we're going to show some of that race. And then we're going to, we might do a Hopkinton Scenic to show where they're, where they're going. Uh, and then get back to the start line in time to show the actual live coverage of the men's start, the men's elite start. And then show some of that race for five minutes and do a couple of feature elements, the course map, that kind of thing. And then get back to the start line again live to set up the women's elite race. So all of this, um, you know, we're, we're sending this out to everybody around the world. And of course, we have our production meetings uh, in Boston to go over all of this uh, so that everybody the people, you know, the, the guys that are the work in the start line, the, 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 um, the people that are taking this world feed and the domestic feed, everybody knows what they can expect. And, and to me, that's, that's the biggest challenge, making sure everybody understands what they're going to see and, and sticking to that rundown. Now, there's things that happen where you lose cameras or, you're, or, or something doesn't happen right on the, uh, the announcement of the uh, introduction of the, the runners at the start line is a minute late and you have to readjust. But, but um, if, if you put out a, a rundown, a good schedule, and everybody understands that and you answer the questions ahead of time, you're, you're, you're much better, much more likely to be successful when, when you're live. Yeah, and you mentioned it too, and I felt the same way. Being in that control room is comfortable. It's all of the stuff leading up to it. When you're talking about doing an event, how far ahead are you looking forward to that, uh, to producing that event? Uh, it, because it's not just showing up, having a rundown, saying, here you go. 
what is the process that you take, at least for some events that you've done, and and how complicated can that be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're really you're really um, starting on the next year's. In the case of the Boston Marathon, as soon as this marathon is over, I mean, we all do our um, post mortem, you know, paperwork. Uh, and get together on the phone and say, here are the five things that we did maybe not as well as we should have done. We did this great and this great and this great, but we, we can tweak this. Um, and they can be as, as little as things like, you know, the bibs on the runners need to be a little bit bigger because you can't quite see them. Um, mm -hmm. When that moto drops back to cover the race, that moto has to be shooting the runners coming at you, not behind them. Um, there's times when, you know, when you, you've done marathons, when you lose signals out on the course, that has to be improved. So there's things that, uh, in the case of the Boston Marathon, we are literally, you know, getting together, you know, the week after, um, and starting to prepare for next year. You just finished, uh, recently the U.S. Open, uh, Serena's last hurrah there, Describe what the mentality was going into this event and then how you executed it. Okay. Well, the, the show that we do, we can talk more about this, is, is um, the DirecTV ESPN Plus shows. And our job, basically, we do the day sessions. Um, and, and our job is to basically put out five channels of television on the five courts that, are, that have English commentary. Um, and, and ESPN, with if you have the ESPN Plus service, the first week you could have watched any one of ten or twelve courts on a on a given day. Um, only f the first five courts, Ash, Armstrong, Grandstand, Court 17, and Court 5, had English commentary. Uh, but the other, there's seven other courts with robotic cameras that if you just wanted to watch a player that's playing out on Court 11 uh, that you liked. Uh, or you knew, um, you could watch that with just international sound, ball hits and that with no announcers, but you could watch that match um, if you have the pay service, the, the streaming pay service, ESPN+. Plus. Um, so to, to answer your question, there's, there's a lot of different balls being juggled out there and, and a lot of ways you can watch the tennis out there. Um, I didn't do uh, produce, you know, I wasn't working when Serena played her first three matches, but that was... That was that was great television. Some of the perks because you get to watch a lot of those things, right? Yeah. You know, I, w I was thinking when when we're t putting some notes together um, uh, for this podcast. You know, I actually produced in 1989. It was September 5, 1989, Chrissy Everett's last match at the U.S. Open. It wasn't her last match playing tennis, but it was her last U.S. Open match. She announced that she was retiring at the end of the year. And, and on that day, she lost to Zena Garrison. It was, a, it was a quarterfinal match on a Tuesday afternoon um, at the U.S. Open. And she, and she lost it. Everybody thought she was going to win and go on to the semifinals where CBS would pick up the coverage. But at that point, uh, um, and Bruce Troy was directing and I was producing um, her final match. You know, you know. Fast forward now, thirty something years, and Serena's playing 
uh, her what could be her final match. And I think the USTA and, and ESPN did a great job covering and, and presenting that whole scene afterwards where she wins the match and they basically tribute, you know, paid this tribute to her in video and, and Gail King coming down and speaking and Billie Jean King coming out and speaking. It was a beautiful, beautiful ceremony. Uh, and I just, it, it dawned on me as I'm watching this how great this is, but 30 years ago when Chrissy Everett lost her last match, like there wasn't even a post-match on-court right. interview. And here she was, the greatest player, you know, you could argue Martina or her, greatest player of our time then. Um, and, and you know, this we didn't think about things like how you, how you yeah. send somebody off. We actually brought her into our little studio. Ash wasn't built at that time. It was Armstrong Stadium that they played on. And this tiny little studio to do a post-match interview in our studio. And, um, you know, just think of how this whole industry, this whole business is, has come forward with how we present things. It's, 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 it was quite remarkable. Yeah, do you think some of that has to do with previous experiences? I'm sure that's part of it. And, and saying, ah, I wish we could have done that, but also technology and how it's grown so that it is more readily available, maybe at a lesser cost as well. Sure. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I'm a big fan of what ESPN, Tennis and Jamie Reynolds and that whole group do. Um, but they, they have taken this whole presentation of the U.S. Open to another level. I mean, their sets look beautiful. Their, their talent's first rate. Their, their production people, Bobby Feller and, and James Davis and producers and, 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 and D-Mob and, and uh, Schwabi and the, the directors, they just do a great job of presenting this. And, yeah. and um, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, that's what people come, have come to expect you know, when you turn on the primetime ESPN um, U.S. Open show, you're you're getting you know quality television, and and you, they don't miss a beat. They really don't. And and I think that it's really come down to um, you know what people are expecting right now. The thing that I, I I've appreciated from you as well, and, and again, I do look at your Facebook posts, and and they're really cool. And and you you have a a, a way of relating with people, and I think that shows. Um, you've you've taken pictures of of your crew and and i think that's great because it does show how important people who work behind the scenes are so we're going to go through a rip of photos here and i just want to get some brief thoughts on each one as they come up okay well in this picture is is sam gore and luke jensen who host the show and steve turnberger there on on uh, camera left um, directing and I produce it and Andrew McConville is a really key AD uh, feature producer and 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 a lot of the I, I try to get the technicians out there the camera guys stage managers um, you know the the guys that the audio and, and tape ops because you know as as, as I like to think and I, I know and and uh, if if everything doesn't work technically you know we can put together great features and and have great coverage of our tennis and and do great between match segments but if mics go down and cameras go down and and um the transmission has a problem the the stories don't get out there so so i try to make everybody get get on out for this set to to kind of thank people everybody on on every level of what we do the monitor on set, the cameras. It's it's quite a production. There's a, there's a lot going on, and we have um, the great thing about doing these shows and and um, what what we do is the ESPN Direct TV 
production that, that goes to DirecTV on five different channels covering five different courts and also goes to ESPN Plus if you have that streaming service. And this is Jeff Perley, uh, uh, the greatest stage manager on the planet who, who makes it all work on the sets telling me where, where people are going to sit and, and, and how things are going to happen out there. This show is, uh, the, the DirecTV shows, we are basically producing a show that um, is, we're not cutting tennis, we are producing the segments between the time matches end and, and, they, and the next match walks on. So we'll, we'll take on those five courts, we'll take the post-match on-court interview, and then it's our job to fill with information and entertainment until the next match comes on. And that could be eight minutes, could be 12 minutes, uh, or 15 minutes. But yeah. what we do is we record segments throughout the day with Patrick McEnroe or John or Chrissy Everett or Pam Shriver or James Blake, um, uh, Brad Gilbert. They'll come into our studio and we'll have segments ready for them to record. And then when matches end, we'll either do a live segment with them or we'll will feed a taped element to that channel. So so we are basically programming five channels at once and there's times when we're just in a routine of recording segments and playing back segments, but then as I we talked the other day, there can be a time when three matches end at once and we're about right. to have a guest that just won, a player that just won, come into our studio. So we're doing that while on the other four channels feeding out recorded segments that uh, that fill that time so there's a it can it can be pretty hectic but that's what i love about the job i've been in those situations myself and it is it is a lot of fun but you definitely have to be on top of everything you we we talked about talent uh, a little bit in there what is the relationship between an announcer and a producer and a, and a producer and a reporter because each one has a different role and an analyst how how would you describe what your mission is when working with announcers. Well, Donna, I have to say that, you know, I have been fortunate to, very fortunate to work with some really talented people over the years. And, and you're really, we're, the show is only as good as what's being presented. And a lot of the on-air talent get entirely too much criticism or and, and, and in some cases praise for what goes out there, but, but yeah. they are what the, the American audience sees. And so the, the pressure is really on them. Um, this is a shot of, of Cliff Drysdale, uh, Sam Gore and Luke Jensen at the Australian Open a few years ago. I worked with Cliffy when I first took over ESPN Tennis um, when I, when I um, got a, an offer from IMG and TWI. They own the, the ESPN Tennis production rights, and, and I was hired to, to produce those shows. And Cliffy was um, my play-by-play -play guy, and he's a legend, Lord, Lord Drysdale, as we call him, a legend in the business and, and one of the original ESPN announcers. And, 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 you know, he certainly knows a whole lot more about the sport of tennis than I do. And, and when I first took over back in 1990, with Cliffy and Fred Stolle and Mary Carrillo and, and later Vetus Garolitis joined us. You know, um, they had their ways of doing things and, and, and they did a great job. And, and, and I can remember my first production meeting and I had a, a format. We sat down and I said, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, this is what the tease is gonna say. And then we're gonna go into highlights from the previous match uh, with these players. And then we're gonna do some graphics. And, and um, Cliffy looked at me and, and, and Freddie said, um, Brian, come on the air, turn our mics on, and let us do it. 
<laughs> I, said, I said, all right, well, we got to have a compromise here. So, so actually, yeah. it was a joke. We, we had some fun with it. But, um, you know, the, the thing I, you know, and I didn't grow, really grow up playing serious tennis. I played a little bit. But the, the idea is, uh, you know, I really decided that, you know, if I'm going to get good at this producing tennis, I'm going to need to li listen to Cliff Drysdale and Fred Stolle and Vitas Gerolitis, right? And Mary Carolla. Yeah. Um, so, so that relationship was, I'm listening to them and we're basically reacting and, and showing them the pictures and giving them the elements, the graphics, the, the, the replays that make it all make sense. And, right. and, 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 and this is Patrick McEnroe and Steve Turnberger, director down in Australia. Um, and as I learned and as young producers are learning today, you know, you can do all the preparation and you can do all of, um, you can, you can make great features and great, you know, tape elements, that kind of thing. But if you're not able to listen to your play-by-play -play guy and your analyst during the game, you're missing something because you have to support what they want to talk about. They are, they're the experts. And it's our job to give them the, 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 the video materials, the graphic materials, the right shots, the director and the producer, to, let, to support what the stories they're trying to tell. And that's, uh, you know, that only comes over time. And I mean, I, I really enjoyed working with Cliffy and Fred and that group. And, and when I did hockey, working with Sam Rosen at Madison Square Garden Network and, 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 and John Davidson, the, the best analyst of his time. He's in, in the business of, uh, with the St. Louis Blues and, and Columbus uh, team now. But, um, but, but when he was an analyst, he was the best. And, and, and I only got to know the hockey game by making sure I listened to John Davidson call the game and Sam Rosen call the game. You'd mentioned Doc Emmerich as well. Yeah. When I, um, when I, I only worked at USA Network for a little over a year, and I got um, uh, offered a job to produce the New Jersey Devils games for Madison Square Garden Network, and I jumped right at it because I, I, I was living in New York at the time, and I, and I was a Devils and Rangers fan. And, I, in, and the first meeting I went to, um, Pete Silverman, who was the executive producer at the time, introduced me to Doc Emmerich and Mike Ruzioni. Those were going to be my play-by-play -play and analysts for taking over the New Jersey Devils games, and how great was that? You know, Doc is a legend, and Mike, obviously, with his Olympic uh, heroics and 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 a great, both of them were great to work with. And um, you know, that was that was my first hockey game, having the two of them in the booth and 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 doing the show with them, and and uh, uh, that was awesome. And then, uh, and about a year and a half later, I was asked to take over the Rangers games. And, um, and Sam Rosen was doing play-by-play, -play and, and Phil Esposito was my analyst, and John Davidson was down in the locker room doing interviews. Um, and then Phil ended up taking over the Rangers, and John moved up to the, to the booth. But, but um, you know, having those guys uh, to work with was just a, an honor and a, and a real pleasure to work with. And I, and I also I tell this story to people when and I did the Rangers for seven, eight years with with JD and Sam, and I saw more of them than I did of my wife for sure, because we traveled together all the time. And and on nights off, 
you know, I would be over at John Davidson's house and he'd have his dish going, watching the American game here and the Canadian game on another dish and telling me everything about every player and, and, and really learn the game from him. And then when we got into the game, you know, um, there's, as you know, there's, a, there's, um, they're on headset and we're in the control room, producer, director, and, and we're communicating, but they have a talkback button where they can hit a talkback the talkback button, and John Davidson could talk directly to me, the producer, in the control room without that going over the air. So as soon as the Rangers scored a goal, J.D. was on the talkback, bring it back to Greshner's hit in mid-ice. That's where he wanted to see the replay. And I, I get frustrated now occasionally when I watch hockey where there's a breakaway and you see three angles of the puck going in the net. Well, that breakaway took place in center ice where right. the defenseman whiffed on a pass and, and, and the goal scorer picked up the puck. If you don't take it back to that point, you don't see it. So, so J.D. would always be on the – and after a while, he didn't need to do that. But that's how that communication between the producer and the talent works and, and really helps to tell the story. You mentioned you know, not queuing up the puck at the right spot. I've seen that in my career. And when I was early, um, that was kind of what I was doing was just showing what – you think is 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 obligate obligatory yeah but somebody told me back then that a producer is almost considered a third announcer you never see him or hear him but they are in the ears of the announcers telling them sometimes what they need to do stay on track with the story have queuing up this replay here so that so it's a two-way street in that regard how would you describe it yeah, that's a great way to put it. I mean, you really have to be thinking along the same lines with your play-by-play -play and your your analyst when when it comes to game time. Because, and again, it gets back to listening to them. I mean, if they're talking about some statistic that that um, uh, you know Aaron Judge, you know, uh, you know, and home runs and, and RBIs, and and you're not supporting it with the right graphic information, you're not you're not doing your job, right? And and the same thing in in any sport, you're if they're talking about in in tennis, if they're talking about this this two-handed backhand that that Andre Agassi is is just turning over and and delivering, you want to show the not just the camera two angle, the end zone angle, but you want to show that camera three angle where you see his grip and you see that two-handed backhand and you see what he's doing special to, to um, put the other player in a defensive mode. And, and you, you have to, you know, you have to listen to what they're saying and support it with the, the, with the right video. Yeah. And I, and I also like to make the comparison that broadcast is a lot like a hand. Like if you have a cut on your finger, it's not going to work as well. If you're broken finger it's not going to work as well yeah. so but as the producer you have to kind of keep everybody in line on that the director handles the visuals but the camera guys are directing themselves sure. to sell the right shot because as a director and you know this as a director when you can just take a shot instead of directing that cameraman into the shot it makes your life so much easier and the broadcast is much more valuable because you're not bogged down by a lot of the the stuff that you don't need to be bogged down by. Sure. Sure. And, and, you know, doing more directing now, um, you know, the technology is, is, is so great. Uh, your, your best camera guys are listening to program. They're hearing the announcers 
in their, in, in, they're not only listening to the director, but they're hearing play-by-play -play in their headsets. So when they, the play-by, the analyst or the play-by-play -play guy says something, right away that camera too is on the bench shooting the player he just talked about. I mean, um, the, the 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 guys that are really good and, and, and are doing that, yeah. um, and and that to me, you know, we, we didn't have that 20 years ago, right. and so it was it was you know things took a little more time, but now your best directors make sure their play by play is heard in the announcer's headset or the camera guy's headset, so they're reacting right along with with the with the director. And again, graphics selling the right graphic, as you mentioned, the yeah. playback area, queuing the, the replay up. So you don't have to ask for that. How valuable is an AD to, uh, I'm sorry, a stage manager to, to helping assist talent? Yeah. I mean, everybody, uh, you know, stage manager, you know, Jeff Pearl, the guy I just mentioned, you know, before I even say anything to him, he's told me that the, the, the players that we're about to interview are making their way to the set and he's got their microphones standing by and they're going to be in chairs one, two. Uh, and Sam and Luke are going to be in chairs three, four. I mean, he's got, and the monitors are are pointed in the right direction so they can see what they need to see. Um, and, you know, th that's critical. And, and same thing with your EVS operators. I mean, when you work with people enough in this business and your your producer, your, your tape ADs or producers, um, you work with enough people, they know what you're looking for before right. you even tell them what you're looking for. And that's why every show I do, I try to put a list together of the, the EVS operators I'd like, the audio guy I'd like or lady, um, and, and see what I can do to get the people on the show that make me look good. Yeah. Because that, that is what it's all about. I mean, it's, it, it really is a team sport what we do. And, um, you know, if you have people that you're comfortable with and who know what you're looking for, that's half the battle. Yeah. Now you're a big golf guy. Uh, mm -hmm. I do have a picture of you at, uh, I believe it's the old course, the British open. Uh, tell me what we're seeing here. Well, fortunately, um, we, um, I had the opportunity and, and my good buddy Don Colantonio put this together where for DirecTV, we would do much like we do with the tennis shows uh, where we would have different channels covering, uh, you know, in addition to what the network is showing. This was the last year, I think 2015 at, at St. Andrews. Um, ESPN was their final year of doing the British Open. And that year, I think I did what was called the, the 17th hole channel, where we showed everybody on the 17th hole. Um, and uh, that's Don right there. This is Muirfield 2013, that shot. Um, but we had... Um, what we did was we provided, I think, four channels. And and uh, if you watch, for instance, CBS uh, for the Masters, you'll see you can watch the Amen channel where, you, where you're just seeing the Amen holes. You, you can watch the 16th hole. Every player play the famous par 3 16th hole. You can also watch feature pairings. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story of, of what I think was the greatest example of how effective this programming can be. In 2014, um, Tiger Woods returned to Royal Liverpool for the British Open, and he hadn't, you know, he had his 
personal problems in 20, 2009, right? And, and really hadn't done anything. But back in 2006, he won his last British Open at Royal Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And Don said to me, all right, we're going to do um, Royal Liverpool 2014, and we'll have our multiple channels. And I want you to do the featured pairings channel. And we're going to try to get Tiger Woods all four days. So um, it could not have worked out better um, in that Tiger played well, shot 69, I think, first round of the 2014 British Open. So the network ESPN covered a lot of his shots. But the second round, he shot 77. So he was off the leaderboard. We covered every one of his shots the first round on Thursday and the second round on Friday. But now the network wasn't showing uh, Tiger Woods because he wasn't on the leaderboard, ESPN. But if you wanted to watch Tiger Woods in every shot, you had to have ESPN3 at that time or uh, DirecTV. And we showed Tiger, we showed Tiger all four rounds. He made the cut, fortunately. Um, but it wasn't a factor, so ESPN didn't show much of him in ABC on the weekends. But we showed he hit, he finished the, the, the tournament six over par, so he hit 294 shots, and we showed every one of his 294 shots. And, and let me make a correction. We showed 293 because on Saturday he was playing with Jordan Spieth and hit the, the, the tee ball into the heavy gorse and just grabbed the club from his caddy and went over and whacked it out of the woods, or out of the weeds. And we were showing Jordan Spieth when he hit that. So, so we showed yeah. 293 of <laughs> 294 Tiger Woods shots at the 214 British Open. Yeah, those it can be it can be very focused on one player, but it's still entertaining. Yeah. Uh, it is. So, so talking about Tiger, you do have a little bit of a history with him. I want, uh, for people who are, are listening to this, feel free to visit Brian's website, brianwilliamstv.com. He does have a clip on there of, of what he had done with, with Tiger. But Brian, I'll let you describe or explain what you did with Tiger uh, back uh, before he won his first Masters. If Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, um, my the, the greatest influence on my career was, was Mark McCormick, the the founder and, and, and owner IMG, um, who, when I was working for IMG, walked into my office in the fall of 96 and said, we're doing a documentary on Tiger Woods. Um, and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, you're doing it. And I, I said, what doing it? He hasn't won anything. I mean, great amateur career, of course. And he said, well, then, then you have to go down and, and make the presentation to him and his dad and, and, um, and team Tiger, um, in next month and to sell him on the idea that we want to do a documentary on him. And Mark, and I, I found out later, had already done a deal with Sean McManus um, at CBS Sports, the new president of CBS Sports, to air this documentary on the, the, before the final round of the 1997 Masters. So we did, we did, I did the presentation, and he agreed to do the show that day. It was December 17, 1996. And, and we had to sell him on the idea that, yes, we would follow him with cameras for the next four months, um, but we wouldn't take up too much of his time. And I actually interviewed him five times during those months and, and went to Thailand with, with him when he, when he played the Asian Open and interviewed his mom there and his dad later on. But we put this documentary together uh, Jim Nance hosted it. Tony Lanning, outstanding director, directed it. Uh, Jaime Diaz, Sports, Sports Illustrated, wrote it. And it was really a, a really 
I think, a great one-hour show talking to everybody, Jack and Arnie and Lee Trevino and Byron Nelson and Phil Knight and Mark McCormick about what he could bring to the sport. But if he doesn't make the cut at the 1997 Masters, this one-hour documentary that's to run on the Sunday before the final round really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, he shoots a 40 on the front round, uh, fr front nine on Friday, uh, Thursday, and we're all nervous. Shoots a 30 on the backside for a 70. I think he shot 66 the next day and ran away with the tournament. I remember Friday when he made the cut, uh, Jim Nance coming down and giving me a high five. <laughs> and saying, okay, the thing's going to air and he's going to be at least playing on Sunday. Well, he goes on to win the tournament by 12 strokes. And, and that's his first Masters win, 1997 Masters, and just shows you how brilliant Mark McCormick was and, 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 and give credit to Sean McManus, too, for, for saying, okay, we need to do this. Right. And, and there was, from my understanding, when we talked the other day, there was a little bit of negotiation that you had to do to, in order for that to happen with, with his dad, Earl. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the fact is when it came to doing the interview with Earl um, Woods, the dad, the creator, um, uh, you know, we I saved that to the end. And it was going to be late February that year. Yeah, I think it was the end of last week in February. And and we couldn't do it without him. But I wanted to save, save him to last because this was going to be, other than Tiger, the most important interview. And I, I did all the interviews myself. Um, and 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 I called Earl two days before. I mean, there wasn't we weren't texting or emailing back then. Um, but I, I called him two days before, and and um, and he said I, I can't do it. And I said, What do you mean you can't do it? Yeah. And, um, you have to do it. And and he said, No, nah, it just didn't work out. And he he didn't hang up on me, but we ended the conversation. And I said, Earl, we're going to be there Tuesday at two o'clock as planned for the interview. And so I knocked on the door and, um, and he opened it up. As it turns out, I would later find out that he and Coltita, his wife, were splitting at that time. Literally, he had in the background Tiger's, you know, clubs um, uh, and his trophies and his, and, and his medals in boxes because he was moving out of the house. But, but once we rolled tape and we got the camera going two hours and 15 minutes later he answered every question and he was he was gracious and he was he was wonderful and and said things that you know we couldn't have done the documentary without and yeah. and that's um you know i'm thankful for that and then like i said he was could not have been nicer and and yeah. um and i was prepared i had my 40 or so questions and he thanked us at the end and and uh, liked liked the documentary and as part of the start of that, you negotiated for a round of golf with Tiger. <laughs> I that was going to be a reward. A reward, Mark okay. McCormick, yeah, Mark McGormick said if you convince him that you're the guy to do the show, you get to play 18 holes with him at, at Isleworth, his where we did the presentation, and and um, uh, that was quite one of the thrills of my golf career. And I don't have much of a golf career, but uh, <laughs> but I do remember that that the opening tee ball with him standing on the tee right next to me um, after he hit his shot. He was playing from the the tips, and we were playing from the members' tees. The foursome I was with. I did hit my best drive of the day right down the middle, and and I was at 
I was sweating it, but it was good. I, yeah. I you know, um, and it was he was great. He was he was fun to play with. He didn't give me any tips along the way, uh, but he did make a couple of comments about things I should be doing a little differently. Um, yeah. So I'm thankful it, for that. It, it, was, when, it was a pleasure. And I know that was before he really made it superstar level. But what were you able to converse with him and and have? Uh, it was or was it have conversations um talk about different things you you said you didn't get much many tips but did you have conversation and if you did what what did those entail no he he to be honest with you other than the interviews we were uh, you know allowed to do with him that I did and a couple of specialty shots on the range we shot with him to give us certain things we needed uh, for the documentary, um, he was all business. I mean, he he was he was all business. And on that day, he was in his own cart. The other, you know, four of us were in two different carts, and he hit from the back tees, and we hit from the front tees. Yeah. Um, and he was all business. And and I remember one hole where he he bogeyed one. I think he shot 65 that day. He bogeyed one hole, and and he hit a bad sand shot that flew the green. He went back and hit. 20 balls from that same position until he, he until he sunk one and he said wow. okay now we can go on he he's he was all business even at that age 18 years old 19 yeah. 19 years old he was all business and and you know I didn't try to make small talk with him and you know um uh but but he was he was he was nice as could be he was gracious but but he was concentrating on his game you've been in the presence of some great athletes Tiger Woods um Billie Jean King over the years, I imagine, and I and, and you just did something with the Intercollegiate Women's Tennis Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. Um, every two years now, the the inter, the ITA Intercollegiate Tennis Hall of Fame Women's Hall of Fame on the College of William and Mary inducts um, new uh, in, inductees, four inductees every two years, and I produce the event along with Tyler Thompson and other members of the committee. Um, and this year, um, Diane Donnelly Stone was inducted, great player uh, from Northwestern who played doubles with Katrina Adams um, in their senior year. They didn't lose a match. They won the NCAA doubles championship. And um, she was just a wonderful person. And she has lived her entire life with type 1 diabetes. And um, so, and she, after graduating from Northwestern, had a brief pro career, but then went to work for Billie Jean King as her executive assistant and helping her with world team tennis. So when Diane was inducted last weekend, Billie Jean said, I'm going to be there um, and, and um, you know, but I'm there just to congratulate um, Diane Donnelly. I really want to be there for her. That's, that's what Billie Jean is all about. And she... Mm -hmm took some pictures with everybody and she could not have been nicer, but, but she was there to say thank you and to tell Diane Donnelly uh, Stone that she was, that was, she inspired Billie Jean King. And, and that's just what Billie Jean King is all about. I, you know, I often ask, people ask me, who's the most famous person you've ever met? You know, she would be right at the top because of what she's done. Not, not just in tennis, but in the right. world, you know, for, for whatever cause uh, you want to talk about. You know, she is, has, has, has been up front and, and front and center uh, with things she believes in. And, and I often say, you know, the world is a better place because of Billie Jean King. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and that's what I appreciate from, again, all my colleagues having had these experiences. And you'd never know until you sit down with them and talk to them. It's like, oh, you were on that event? Oh, you, you worked with them? You know, what was it like? And, 
and and just hearing stories like this it's it's just great and so thank you for sharing a lot of that with me uh what are some of the more memorable events that you've produced uh over the years or been uh, been a part of well, one of my favorite events is the New York City Marathon. Um, you know, we talk about marathons, um, and and having the opportunity to to produce the um, 2001 New York City Marathon. You know, where it was seven weeks after 9/11. Uh, that was a special event, and and we um, we we didn't. We of course we covered the lead pack. And we, we covered that story of the race, but we did so many features and so many elements for the race on young people that were running for their dads that were in the Twin Towers when they went down. Um, firemen running for other firemen that died that day. Policemen, they, they have the, the Mayor's Cup every year where the firemen run against the policemen of New York City for the Mayor's Cup. It's a fun race, but they go at it. You know, they, they really, um, it's the top runners from each of the fire departments and the police departments. But that was special that year because of what went on. And, um, you know, so that to me, and, and I guess timing's everything, um, was producing it uh, that year and, and just being able to be a part of New York City coming back to life because the, at that time the Yankees and the Mets and the Giants and the Jets had be, resumed play, but, but everybody that went into Yankee Stadium or Shea Stadium or, or the Meadowlands were, were you know, they, they, you had to go through metal detectors. It's a different story when your two million people are lining the streets of New York City. So the, 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 the security was heightened and we weren't told all the details, but we knew that the security. And we even had, that year it was on NBC, we even had talks, what happens if something happens on the course? They're going to take over our truck to cover the event, right? Um, so, so that was a, a, you know, a special year to do the New York City Marathon. That's right up there. Yeah, uh, and and you know, we mentioned at the beginning uh, the the Boston Marathon. You yeah. told me when we talked a couple of days ago that you were not there the year of the bombing. I happened to be there. It was a it was it was it was an experience. I'll, I'll just say that. But you, the next year, were back, and you pretty much had to do the same thing you did for that 2001 marathon, right? You had to, we had to recap yeah. everything and, yeah. and, and make people um, appreciate the tragedy and, and, but move on. And, and how, yeah. how, how did that affect you? Well, the, the reason I wasn't there that year is because, you know, and I've been producing the Boston marathon since 2008 or nine, mm -hmm. Um, and, but I wasn't there. It's the only year I've missed, 2013. And at the time, I was still um, doing the um, the world feed for the Masters. I did the Masters for 22 years, the world feed there. And that one year, because of the way the calendar fell, the the normally there's eight days between the final round of the Masters that Sunday and then Patriots Day eight days later in Boston, the Monday of the running of the Boston Marathon. But that year, for some reason, the Boston Marathon was moved up. And so it fell on the day after the Masters. So I couldn't do both. And, and I had to do the Masters. Um, um, so, so I asked a good buddy of mine, um, Steve Mayer, to cover for me. And Bruce Troit was, was, was directing. And on that day, um, very often, you know, I was able to play Augusta after do, working in the shows 
and and on media day I was able that day to play the course, um, which was a thrill. Um, but I'm driving back at about three thirty in the afternoon that day because I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Now I was driving back from Augusta, got in my car, and driving back, and I just turn the radio on and I'm hearing the story of the bombing of the Boston Marathon. And I'm saying, what? The bombing of the Boston Marathon. So I'm listening to this and the first thing I thought of, of course, is all of you guys on site, including Bruce Troit, the director, Steve Mayer, and everybody else and, and you know everybody that I know and had been working with for the past five years, is everybody okay? And I couldn't get through. Could not get through until six o'clock that night because of course, um, with security, they shut down all cell lines. Mm -hmm. And so I did not know until finally talked to Bruce Troy that night, uh, about six o'clock, he called me back and said, he's got phone service and yes, everybody was okay. And, and that was, um, uh, that was great to hear, believe me. Um, and I, and I often wonder because uh, like you, you know, I, I, when we're off the air and, and the world feed gets off the air at about 1230 and that first bomb went off at 249 and I like to go out and spend a couple hours at the finish line just watching the race yeah. which we don't get a chance to do when we're when we're producing it and say thank you to people and 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 and, and you know see people that I missed and I I might have been right there I I, I don't know yeah. um uh, you know I don't know what that means but I I I just don't know where I would have been maybe I wouldn't have been right there but uh, would have been in the area someplace yeah, it, it was it was definitely. Uh, <laughs> I said it before. It, it it was an experience that you really don't want to relive. Um, yeah. But yeah, the communications got shut down about fifteen minutes after we had to evacuate the area, and then it was just a waiting game, and and you know because we were separated from from some of our crew as well. So I I can uh, understand yeah. the angst that you were experiencing as well. But uh, you know, fortunately, everyone. You know, on our crews, we're we're good, and and it really makes you think of the evacuation plan that they put into the site surveys yep. now. So, yep. Uh, yep. but yeah, it was uh, it was it was an experience that um, I'm grateful for in in many ways because it makes you realize what's important uh, in your life. So, That's right. That's um, right. okay, so talk about the impossible jump. Because <laughs> you had mentioned to me a couple of days ago that that was a, a memorable event for you as well. Yeah, um, the impossible jump, and this was another Don Colantonio production um, with uh, EOE, um, ESPN Original Entertainment. What we were doing was uh, Mike Metzger was going to do a backflip um, on his motorcycle over the fountains at Caesar's Palace. And um, it was a, it was one of the first shows that ESPN and this was this was May fourth, two thousand six. It was one of the first shows that they were going to not only distribute worldwide, but 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 stream on on, on ESPN streaming service. They were going to test it out, as I understand it. Um, and um, it was great. It was the only show I ever worked with with the, the, the outstanding, the talented director, Ralph Molay, and Susie Colbert hosted it. And, and um, you know, we, the first thing that I wanted to do, if we're going to do this show with Mike Metzger doing a backflip, we have to get with Evil Knievel, and we have to get his footage of when he broke every bone in his body 40 years earlier, 1967. And, and we have to get that footage, and we need Evil to be there 
to be on site to watch this. And, and also, you know, some of the other, um, Travis Pastrana and some of the other, uh, Matt Hoffman, some of the other daredevils of that time need to be there to watch this. They're all buddies of Mike Metzger. And if he's going to do this thing, we need to cover it right. So um, I was, you know, and I, I didn't realize it until we called um, Evil Knievel. He was living at the time down in Florida and, and said, um, we want him there and, and we want his footage. And he, he owned it. ABC didn't own it. Wide World of Sports didn't own it. Evil Knievel owned it. So I spent four or five nights and he called me every name in the book because what he wanted for the for the money again uh, negotiation, <laughs> yeah negotiations. We ended up settling on ten thousand dollars for his footage of him um, crashing uh, at Caesar's Palace in nineteen sixty seven, and and uh, we picked that up and and we were able to put that on the show because you got you you can't show this this thing. It, we also sent him two um, first class tickets. Uh, so he would be there to interview him and, and be part a big part of the show. And he never made it. He, he, I don't know what he did with the tickets. But I, I, he died a year later. Um, so he was not in good health. Yeah. Uh, so he did, so he didn't make, but he never got in touch with, it. he just didn't show up. Um, but, but we did the show and, and it, you know, it was really, you talk about a, a, you know, a show that, that you, um, that just everything went right. Great crowd on hand, great day. You know, Mike did everything we asked of him, Mike Metzger, you know, because it's, it's all of, we did a one hour show. He was going to set the Guinness world book of records by going 112 feet in the air and doing a backflip and landing it clean on, on the, on the, on the ramp. Um, but that only takes 90 seconds. (laughs) So we had some entertainment. We showed, um, we did a bunch of interviews and we made sure that he went up three times and almost jumped uh, on his takeoff and stopped the and drama. then went back again. The drama, right? Yeah. And, he, and he did it beautifully. He did yeah. it beautifully. And he nailed it 112 feet in the air. He, he almost um, flew the, the, the ramp, the, the landing ramp. He went 100, more than 125 feet, and it was only built for 125. But he, his back wheel caught the ramp, and he and he landed. The only thing he did wrong was because his girlfriend and two-year-old son were there. You know, he he decided he was going to say, "Now we're going to Disney World." That was not part of the deal. But he he said, "We're now we're going to Disneyland Uh-oh. instead of Disney World." <laughs> so I don't think it was ever used. But that's the yeah. only thing he did wrong. Otherwise, yeah. he was great, and and he did everything we asked of him. It was it was quite a show. Well, and and again, when we talked the other day, you mentioned that that is one of the mem- memorabilia that. Um, it really has some meaning to you. So, so here's what it looks like. Uh, and it's, it's just basically a, a signed poster. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for making the impossible, the impossible jump 125 feet. Yeah. yeah. He was they're They're a different breed for sure. The guys that do that kind of thing. Yeah. Are you able to develop relationships with uh, some of the people, you know, in this case, would be a notable figure or, or, or do those just kind of come here and there? Yeah. O- over the years, I've, I've developed relationships with, with, you know, a lot of the tennis players and, um, you know, and, and Billie Jean King, I consider a friend and, and, and she um, often laughs about the, the early times we met. 
When I did the hockey, I became good friends with all the New York Rangers players, including John Van Beesbrook, who, who now oversees U.S. Olympic teams. Um, and John was the goaltender at the Rangers at the time, and we did features together. And I, I played golf with him like every weekend for the for for years uh, there and and um, Marcel Dion when he was playing with the Rangers and it was a good golfing buddy and and uh, Michelle Bergeron the coach uh, we got to be good friends and and uh, so yeah you do you do build up relationships with with people but but also you have to kind of keep your distance too mm -hmm. if you're going to be covering them as you know um, there's times when uh, you know you're showing things where where they're they're not at their best I guess um, right. and you got to be you got to be honest with your with your on air talent mostly them being being somewhat critical of the way the team is playing or or that player is doing wrong and because everybody can't win. Uh, yeah. There's, there's got to be times. So, so to answer your question, yes, I have become friendly with a lot of players along the way, but but um, and and keep in touch with a lot of players. Yeah. I just want to let people know that uh, Brian has won a multiple multiple numbers of Emmys. Uh, he's made a huge contribution, not just domestically to the sport and sports broadcasting world, but internationally. So, uh, you know, next time you're taking a look at at, at some of these global events more than likely Brian will have had a hand or is having a hand in, in the production. Uh, so Brian, I, I do want to ask though, before we, we actually go, what is your favorite sports movie? I have a lot that I, that I love, but there's only one that stands so much above the others. That's not even close. Caddyshack. Caddyshack, Caddyshack. is, I, I could watch Caddyshack every day and find new things to laugh at, whether it's Bill Murray or, or Rodney Dangerfield. I love that movie. So Caddyshack is, is right there. Okay, well, I'm not gonna let you go that easy. What are some of the favorite quotes from that movie? Because you could probably quote the whole film. <laughs> you must have been something before electricity. <laughs> <laughs> I always love the, the part with Spalding though. Anything Spalding is, is hilarious to me. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. No, I, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. A lot of fun. All right, Brian. Well, thank you again for your time. Again, if people want to see a little bit about The Impossible Jump, a little bit about Tiger Woods, and maybe just a little bit more about Brian's history, visit brianwilliamstv.com. Brian, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing time with me, and I uh, look forward to hearing about your next event. Thank you, Don. I appreciate you having me on, and I'm looking forward to your next movie. Brian is not only talented and a great negotiator, he collaborates with his crew to make sure the viewers at home enjoy the events that they watch. I truly appreciated my time with him and I look forward to watching anything he produces in the future. Again, if you'd like to find out more about Brian, visit brianwilliamstv.com. For more Sports in the Making podcast episodes, visit our YouTube page, Sports in the Making, or take a listen on your favorite audio podcast platform. Also be sure to check out Twitter at SportsMaking as well as the Facebook page. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making. I'm Don Cardona.